Well, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And if you're a visitor this morning and uh, maybe you don't have your Bible with you, I'd encourage you, the blue ones in your pew rack in front of you are Bibles. If you look for 2 Corinthians in the green one, you may search for a while. Um, the blue ones are the Bibles, and you can turn to page 1226. And I would encourage you uh, to open 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and then to leave it open for the remainder of the sermon. Um, because you're going to be able to follow along as I preach from 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. Some churches you go to and uh, you may feel like you're flipping all over the place in your Bibles, but here we just uh, like to preach verse by verse, chapter by chapter through various books of the Bible. Um, it's what, what's called expository preaching. I don't know if you've heard that before, but that's what we do here. And it's not a secret. We just march through books of the Bible. Um, some pastors go into their study and they create an outline and then they look for verses that they can kind of hang on an outline they've created. I personally would rather go to the scriptures and let the scripture tell me what I ought to preach. And so that's why you want to leave your Bible open. It's gonna, you're going to follow the outline right through the verses as we hear from Paul's letter to the Corinthians this morning. So no flipping, all right? No flipping this morning. Last week, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul finished up the chapter talking about how he had a, a change of plans. He heard about the problems in the church at Corinth, all these issues, and he got really revved up and he decided, you know what, I'm just going to go to Corinth I'm going to deal with these problems, and then I'll make my way along my journey. Something happened, though, and he changed his mind. He refrained from coming, and we're going to find out this morning. Instead of coming in person, he sent a letter. Now, in modern day, we have a word for people who say they're going to do one thing and do another, and that word is politicians, right? Right? But we learned last week, Paul was not being political here in changing his plans. He wasn't trying to jerk around the church and confuse them. No, Paul wasn't being political in changing his plans. Paul was being pastoral. It's a pastor's heart that knows when it's time to come hard and when it's time to come easy. When it's time to really lay down the hammer and when it's time to be easy on the sheep. You see, Paul was the kind of man who had, took no joy in beating the sheep. And so he resisted the impulse to visit and he sent a letter instead, not because he was trying to be political and play some kind of mind game with the Corinthians, but because he loved them and he had a pastor's heart. This morning in chapter 2, Paul's going to give us three reasons why he decided to send a letter. Three reasons, he says, why I wrote to you instead of visiting. And so this morning, if you've turned to 2 Corinthians, let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word through the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. 
For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. For if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Let's pray. Spirit, we pray, steer our hearts into joy and love and greater and greater obedience to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said this morning, in this first half of the chapter, Paul gives us three reasons, he says, why I wrote to you. We see the first one in verse 3. He says, and I wrote as I did. Then again in verse 4, for I wrote to you. And then verse 9, for this is why I wrote. All right, so he's going to lay out the three reasons why he decided not to visit and instead sent a letter. And so let's take a few minutes this morning looking at each of the three reasons why Paul wrote. He says, number one, I wrote in order to bring about joy. I wrote in order to bring about joy. So Paul, he hears some disturbing news about what's going on in the Corinthian church, about sin and people rebelling against his authority and turmoil and strife, and he has more than half a mind to storm right into Corinth, right in the back doors of the church, right up to the pulpit, and to verbally scourge all of those people's heinies right side and down. But he says, verse 1, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. I had to talk myself down (laughs) from wanting to come and have another painful encounter. Not again, Paul says. He'd done it before. He says, I'm not going to do it this time. And he goes on to explain why in verse 2. For if I cause you pain... Who is there left to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. In a nutshell, Paul says, I avoided visiting Corinth in order to bring about joy. I wrote in order to bring about joy. And I think 
the Apostle Paul reveals something very profound in this decision that he makes here. He realizes that in this situation with the church, his joy is at stake. And not only his joy, but the joy of the church. Because he says, my joy and your joy, it's all bound together. Our joy is at stake. And he sees past the current circumstances and the bonehead moves that the Corinthians are doing and the sin and all of the terrible things. And he sees past it and he realizes, but if I bring a black cloud into this relationship, who will I have left? If I spend all of my time accosting these brothers and sisters in Corinth and bringing them suffering and pain every time I visit, who will be left in my life to bring me any joy? This is all about joy. So let's just stop here for a moment and and think about the relationships that we have in our own lives. Think about the people who are closest to you. Paul says, do you realize that those people were placed in your life to bring about joy? Just Let's just start with our church this morning. Think about the church for a moment. If your only relationship with our church is to talk about all the things that are wrong, how the preaching goes too long, or the people are... Nope, this person didn't shake my hand, or I don't like this, or these people are are terrible, or this or that. And the only way that you interact with your church is to bring constant criticism and negativity and pain, constantly pointing out what is wrong with your church. My question to you is, who else do you have in your life to bring you joy, if not your church? That church, Paul says, imperfect as it may be, was placed in your life by God to bring about joy. So instead of that, you're when you're constantly interacting and negativity and criticism and, and bringing pain in your every visit and your every thought in that relationship, you're robbing yourself of joy and your church as well. Well, let's expand it even into our homes. What about your wife, your husband, your spouse? Whenever you're interacting with them or you think about them as the only conversations you have constantly about pointing out what's wrong with them. When you think about that person, the only thing you think about are what you consider to be the worst sins in their life that they still haven't fixed. The only serious conversations you have with them is to criticize, tear down, If your spouse can't bring joy in your life, who do you have left? Or your kids. The only time that your kids, your grandkids hear from you is whenever you're going to tell them how terrible and naughty and awful they are and how disobedient they always are and how much they let you down. Is that all they hear from you? If your kids can't bring you joy, then who will? And I could go on and on and talk about our co-workers and our family members. The point is, the relationships that God has put in your life, the people in your life, are meant to bring about 
Joy. And yet how many of us rob ourselves and others of joy by clouding all of those relationships with constant negativity and criticism and suffering and pain. If you can't find joy in your local church, in the wife of your youth, in the children God has graciously given you, who do you have left? And the world will tell you, well, you can find joy in stuff, you know, Netflix, make you feel good. Social media, you can get some likes online. That'll make you bring some joy into your life. You know, money, accomplishments at work, that will bring you joy. You can find comfort in food or uh, the comforts of, of a nice home or a new sofa. No, it won't. <laughs> what Paul says is the source of your joy in your life are the relationships that God has given you. Relationships with people made in the image of God, particularly, he shows us in 2 Corinthians, the body of Christ. If the body of Christ cannot bring joy to your life, then who can? When we begin to realize this, we'll start to treat the body of Christ differently. Or start to talk about our brothers and sisters in the church differently, talking to them differently. And that's what we see in the Apostle Paul. Because he knows the Corinthian church is meant to bring joy to him. To make him glad. I was at a conference in Charlotte a few years ago. It was called the First Five Years Conference. And uh, the objective was gather pastors from the area who were still in their first five years of ministry. And it was put on by Mark Dever, Capitol Hill Baptist, um, Nine Marks Ministries, if you've heard of them. Um, but a, a seasoned pastor by the name of Thabiti Anyabuile got up, and he was doing a sermon on encouragement. And uh, I want to, this was his rule of thumb, and it sticks, it sticks with me to this day. He said, for every criticism that you offer your church or someone else, there ought to be ten encouragements. For every criticism, there ought to be ten encouragements. And it was like he was saying, you know, young pastors have a tendency to be harsh on their churches or something. I don't know. But what is he saying about us as fragile human beings? We are so fragile. When we're constantly inflicting suffering and pain upon pain on other people in our lives... Constantly reminding them of what they've done wrong and never providing any comfort or encouragement. We're destroying the people who are meant to share joy with us in our lives. If we constantly focus on the sin we see, they will, continue, they will quickly become weighed down. Think about your Bible for a minute. God would have been completely justified to fill every single verse telling us how sinful and wicked and deserving of His wrath we are forever and ever. Completely justified for every single word out of His mouth to us to just destroy us and say, you're so sinful. You're so wicked. And certainly there are plenty of verses, more than enough, to, sh to show us the truth about ourselves. But more often, the scriptures direct our attention away from ourselves and to a God 
who forgives our sins. To a God who sent His Son to show compassion for broken and sinful people like us. To pursue wandering sheep and bring us back. To a God who even sacrificed His own Son on the cross and raised Him from the dead so that He could send His Spirit into our hearts so that we might know the fullness of joy that is reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. That's what we find in the Scriptures. The Westminster Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's drawn straight from the central message of the Bible. We think even about the Gospel of Matthew's testimony about Jesus, that a bruised reed He will not break, and and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. Can the people in your life say that about you? I wrote in order to bring about joy, Paul says. Secondly, number two, I wrote to show love. I wrote to show love. When you see sin, particularly sin that affects you, in the life of someone else, What's your first instinct? Judgment? Anger? Maybe you feel a smug, I'm better than you kind of satisfaction, right? To see the other person fall into sin. How about tears? When you see sin in someone else's life, is your first instinct just to go into your room and to fall on your knees in tears? What about anguish of heart? Do you feel despair whenever you see sin in someone else's life? From what Paul, the way he talks in this beginning of the second chapter, you get the feeling that Paul is more torn up and in distress and anguish of heart about the sin in the Corinthian church than he is by his own persecution, his own beatings, his own imprisonments, his own very real problems. The thing that keeps him up at night, that has him rolling over and his heart just wrenched and his pillow soaked with tears, is the sin that he sees in the life of his brothers and sisters. Look at verse 4. For I wrote to you, out of much affliction, anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The way that we respond to the sin in other people's lives reveals a lot about the attitude of our own hearts. Number one, the sin in the lives of other people doesn't bring you to this place of anguish and tears and distress. It's probably because you haven't spent enough time dwelling on the effects of sin in your own life. Because if you know what sin does to you, the shame, the guilt that you experience, the distance that you feel from your Heavenly Father who loves you, the way that you realize how it dishonors the name of your Savior, 
and how it grieves the spirit that's inside of you, if you recognize those things about your own sin, it's the last thing that you want to take place in the life of anyone that you love. If you're a member of this church this morning and you feel like parts of this church or members of this church are living in sin or aren't doing what they ought to be doing, the body is unhealthy, there's no room for anger or for self-righteous judgment. Think about it. If the eyes see that the hand has gangrene, the eyes don't stand by in self-righteous smugness and say, oh, look at that hand. No, the eye grieves about what's happening to the body. Or if the ear hears that the heart is clogged with plaque and is is on the verge of a a life-threatening heart attack, the ears don't get angry at the heart for being unwell. The ear mourns over the news. Brothers and sisters, this is the way that we ought to respond when we hear about sin in the lives of those that we love. And there are a lot of Christians out there who want to speak the truth. They want to tell others about their sin. They want to point out the ways that the people in their lives are disobeying God. But the Bible clearly calls us to speak the truth in love. You want to know a good gauge to know whether you're speaking the truth in love to that person in that moment. Have you spent time mourning over their sin? Have you been shedding tears over the disobedience in the life of that person before you came and spoke a single word to them? Are you speaking from a place of deep distress and anguish of heart? Paul says, I wrote in order to show my love. Isn't this true of God's word? Does God delight in pointing out our sin? Does God take great joy? You know, do do we read in the scriptures about this omnipotent jerk who just enjoys reminding us of all the ways we're sinning against him and he just cannot wait to inflict wrath on us? No. Or do we find a God who mourns over our sins? Who laments the ways that we wander from him? who describes himself as a husband whose people are like a wife who's been unfaithful. It's how heartbroken he is over the idolatry in our own lives. The Gospel of Luke tells a story that while Jesus was carrying the cross, he's on his way to be crucified, beaten, bloody, weary. And he's followed by a group of women who are mourning, weeping behind him. And he turns around and he says to them, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. And then in just a few verses, he goes up on the cross and we hear him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's the heart of God. On his way to the cross, Jesus is saying, you need to be mourned over more than me. And that's why I've come. That is a heart of love that even in the midst of great suffering 
His greatest suffering, His greatest sorrow is over the sins of the people that He came to save. I get the feeling that Paul has begun to grasp the depths of his own sin. Which is the only way that he can respond with this kind of love to a church that has wronged him in so many ways. Paul says, secondly, I wrote in order to show love. Finally, Paul says in verse 9, I wrote in order to know your obedience. I wrote in order to know your obedience. Look at me with me at verse 9. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. From the context, as we read this morning, it's clear that Paul must have in this previous letter he's talking about commanded the Corinthians to put somebody out of the church. And Paul hears that there's a man in the church who's been uh, engaged in some kind of sin. We see this actually in Paul's uh, in 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you go read chapter 5, there's a man there who's been parading around proudly telling everyone he's been shacking up with his mother-in-law and he has no shame. He's been telling his boss at work, everyone knows, and Paul says, enough is enough. You all need to get a church meeting together and you need to formally remove this man from your membership. And so whether Paul's talking about that specific instance or he's talking about another letter that came between First and Second Corinthians, uh, what is clear is that although Paul was seeking joy and he was making known his love, he was also searching out the obedience of this church. He's still addressing the sin and the rebellion that's going on in the church. He's not setting an example here for us where we just kind of gloss over the ways people are disobeying God and we just, you know, we just show we just want to sacrifice obedience for the sake of joy and love. He's not saying we just kind of walk around around with rosy tinted glasses and Pretend everything's okay. This gets to the heart of why he wrote instead of visiting in person. Because Paul's first instinct was to sail to Corinth, to march in the doors of that church, to call a church meeting, and to formally kick this guy out of the church on his authority as an apostle, which he would have been very much in the right to do. But he says, I didn't do that. I wrote a letter to you commanding you guys, local church, to take care of this yourself and to see whether you would be obedient. Because Paul knows that what's best for the Corinthians is not for Paul to roll into town and take care of matters every time there's a problem or an issue in the local church. It's time for the Corinthians to begin to learn obedience, to begin to learn what it means to live out the Christian life for themselves. It's like a father whose son is starting to learn how to ride a bike without the training wheels. There's got to come a time when the father lets go of the seat and lets the son begin to sail on his own. And it's not just trust in the Corinthians here. When Paul lets go of the Corinthians and says, I wrote to you in order to discover whether you'd be obedient or not. He's trusting the spirit that God has put in their hearts 
that when he sends a letter to them, a spirit is going to work in them to obey. Paul trusts that the spirit's going to be the one to guide the church into obedience and keep them from skidding to the ground. Number three, I wrote in order to know your obedience. Sadly, there are too many churches out there who think that in order to have joy, in order to show love, we've got to sacrifice obedience. We've got to overlook sin. We've got to tolerate gross disobedience, blatant disregard for the law of God in our midst. We've got to do it in order to preserve joy and in order to have true love in the people of God. Paul's explanation here is not an either-or. He says, I wrote in order to bring about joy. I wrote in order to show love. And the very same letter that I wrote, I also wrote in order to know your obedience. His letter is accomplishing all three somehow, joy, love, and obedience. The problem is, Paul says that when any part of the body is disobeying God, is living in open, unrepentant sin, it doesn't just hurt that person. It hurts the whole body. Look at verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he hasn't caused it to me only, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. To all of you. And the kind of obedience that Paul's talking about in verse 9 is what we call church discipline. Church discipline, if you want to read about what church discipline looks like, Jesus himself lays out the directions in Matthew chapter 18. So this isn't something somebody dreamed up. The words of Jesus Christ himself. Really, all of Scripture are the words of Jesus, but if you want to get technical about it, um, this is straight out of the mouth of Jesus during his ministry. He told us how to exercise church discipline, and Paul is saying you need to obey. The instruction Jesus gives is if someone sins against you, you go personally and talk to them. If they repent, great. You've won your brother back. If they refuse to listen to you, then you go get a couple more people. You go talk to them again. Plead with them in tears, asking them to turn away from their sin and come back to God. If they refuse, Jesus says, take it to the church. And after the church has fallen on its knees, pleading with that person to repent and come back to Jesus, if they remain hard-hearted and refusing to repent, you put them out of the church. That's what Paul means when he says in verse 6, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. But even as a church puts that person out of their membership, even in that act, they are acting in trust that the Spirit may even use that Separation from the body of Christ to draw that person back. To break through the impenitence of their heart. It's for that person's eternal joy that you're fighting. And so in order to show your your love for them, you care so much that you're not willing to let them continue to walk in disobedience. But when the Spirit works in their heart and they repent and weeping, they come back and they acknowledge that they've sinned against God and against the people of God. Paul says, verse 7, So you should rather turn and forgive and comfort Him 
or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. There should be exuberant joy in the midst of the people of God over a repentant sinner. They come back. They realize what they've done. And we should have an outpouring of love and forgiveness on them. Paul, Paul says, verse 10, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. In the presence of Christ. You know, Paul's not going to come marching through the back doors of our church to visit us anytime in the near future. But one day, Jesus Christ will. And he's going to want to know, has this church been living in obedience to the message that he sent by his Apostle Paul? Did you obey the instructions that I sent? Ultimately, our obedience to what Paul calls us to in 2 Corinthians comes from an awareness that everything we do is done in the presence of Jesus Christ who is now seated on the throne and who rules over his church and who is in charge of our very lives and everything that we do and who exercises his perfect will over us. It is our duty when we see commands in scripture to obey. You know, when we see a person in grievous sin, the the comfort in us often just wants to look the other way. It'd be so much easier not to say anything. You know, we just, let's just have love and joy and, and we'll sacrifice a little bit of obedience in this area. Paul says, when we think that love and joy are at odds with obedience, we've been outwitted by the schemes of Satan himself. Satan convinces us, you can't have all three of these in the church. You can't have joy and love and obedience. You're going to have to sacrifice one of these three. Satan convinces us you can't have joy and love and obedience. And to uh, borrow a phrase from a past president, yes, we can. (laughs) Paul says this morning, yes, we can. That's why I wrote to you. I wrote to you for this very reason. Because we serve in the presence of Christ Jesus. What a joy it is to know a father who has sent his son to be the savior of the world. What kind of love is poured into our hearts? The love of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And yet the call of Christ is simple. It's one of obedience. Follow me. So if you have no joy in your life, it's because you have yet to know the father. If you have no love in your life and you just experience hatred and anger and judgment and wrath in all of your relationships, it's because you have yet to know the love of a God who sees you in your sin and weeps over it. In fact, sent his son to die on a cross so that you might be forgiven. And if you're not walking in obedience and your life is filled with disobedience to the commands of Jesus Christ, it's because you're not his disciple yet. 
You need to take up your cross and follow him. Paul says, I wrote in order to bring about joy. I wrote in order to show love. And I wrote in order to know your obedience. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the letters of Paul. What a shepherd he is. What a pastor understanding when to come hard when we need to be beaten around a little bit and then also when to go easy on us and be tender. Lord Jesus, we know it's only because he's reflecting your heart and speaking to us your very words of comfort this morning. So may we not be ashamed to be a place of overflowing and abundant joy and love and obedience. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.